Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. You know, our theme for Easter is truly coming home. And we use that not only because we're trying to encourage people to come back on campus, and we're seeing a lot of people feeling very comfortable doing that, uh, but we're also encouraging people to make a connection, to use this as an opportunity to make a connection with their Heavenly Father, to to come home, uh, to reconnect with the uh, level of commitment perhaps you had at one point in your life, or to discover a new commitment that's possible. Maybe you've never had that at any point in your life. So the invitation is to, is to come home. In fact, when you look in the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, you don't go past the seventh chapter until you see the first invitation for people to come. The Bible, after the ark was completed, says that Jesus extended the invitation. God says, come thou and all your family into the ark. He didn't say go into the ark. That would have made it sound like he was on the outside telling them to go in. He said come into the ark, meaning he was on the inside with them, inviting them to come with him. And then you get to the last book of the Bible, and you see another invitation in Revelation 22, where he says the spirit and the bride say come. The last invitation in the Bible is given in the last chapter of the Bible. What's my point? My point is throughout all the Bible, the invitation is there, come home. God desires a relationship with you and me. I believe that so strongly that I don't think it's an accident you're in the room or you're watching online this morning because it's God's desire to reconnect with you, to connect with you so that you can know him. And so this this, uh, opportunity you and I have to invite people to come home is tremendous because you know how it is. People go typically two times of the year and this is one of those two times. So we don't want to miss the opportunity to get the lilies here. We'll get the poinsettias in the fall. We wanna get all the lilies on board. We wanna get those people into the house. And so be sure and invite someone to be a part of the services with you as we encourage them to come home. Well, when Jesus was on the earth, his whole ministry on the earth was just connecting people, trying to get them connected. In fact, uh, the the ministry of Jesus was a, a search and rescue type ministry. In fact, in Luke 19, 10, he said, the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And I told you last weekend, that's the word Jesus used to describe the spiritual condition of people apart from God more than any other word. He said, they're lost, they're lost. They're looking, they're searching, they're trying to fill some void or vacuum in their life, but they are lost. And so he said, I came into the world to seek and save those who are lost. He was preoccupied with that. Everywhere he went and all that he did was about reaching people who did not not know him. And yet when you study the ministry of Jesus, particularly in the passage you and I are looking at in Luke 15, he was criticized for that. People criticized him. And the people who criticized him most were religious people. You would have thought they'd have been on the same team. You would have thought they were cheering him on. Not so. These people were seeing how he was turning the religious establishment upside down because the Pharisee was teaching that there is a way whereby you can find God, but it's in keeping the law, it's in following all these rules, it's in connecting through these rituals, and if you don't do that, you don't stand a chance, you're not getting in, and so they characterized people as righteous and unrighteous, as clean and unclean, and that's how they saw people. And so the people Jesus came to minister to were people who were 
certainly trying to find their way. They were certainly trying to connect with God, but he was basically putting the religious uh, message on its end by saying, it's not in your religion. It's not in your righteousness. You can't be good enough to get in. It's not in the rituals. It's not in following the rules. It's not in any of that. It's in your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, remember, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so all throughout his ministry, he's connecting people into a relationship with God through his person, and he's criticized it for that by the religious establishment. In fact, in Luke 15, it opens with this idea that the scribes and the Pharisees were criticizing him, and here was their criticism. He's relating to, fellowshipping with, uh, identifying with those who are lost, the sinners. And I mean, they were so critical of him. I mean, they just could not believe that Jesus would associate with people who are, who are lost. And so when you read the parable of Luke 15, he's answering the criticism. And in the answer of the criticism, he is underscoring the significance of his ministry on the earth, which was to go after the lost, people like you and people like me. I told you before a troubling statistic that I read where once a person has made a commitment to Christ and have a relationship with Christ, within the first two years, they have virtually no friends with anyone who doesn't know Jesus. They tend to isolate themselves from people who don't know Christ. I think that's a tragedy. On the leading edge of the ministry of the church, it ought to be to go after the lost. And you can't reach them unless you first build a bridge of redemptive relationships with people who are lost. What's the old saying? People don't uh, care how much you know. Do they know how much you care? And so if you're connected to them through some type of relationship, you're going to have a greater opportunity to share your faith. So why do you isolate and why do you insulate? And Jesus was on the, the earth. Now look, he didn't become sinful to reach sinful people. <laughs> if you're a lifeguard, you need to know how to swim. If you're going under, you don't want some joker to go drown with you. You want that guy to jump in there who is the best swimmer in the pool to get you out. Well, that's what, he's the best swimmer in the pool. So I'm saying when you go into the deep end to try to rescue people who's drowning, you need to know how to swim. I just put that in there. But I'm just suggesting to your heart that the purpose of the church, the leading edge of the ministry is to reach the lost. And so many times we forget that the, to, to, to do the main thing and it's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. I read where when they were laying railroad track out across West Texas, a lot of the crew would get bit by rattlesnakes. And so after a while, so many of them were getting bit and, and the fame of the rattlesnake was growing among the crew. And it wasn't long until the foreman said, I got more people looking for snakes and laying track. I get that. Well, as a church, you can start looking for snakes instead of laying track. It's easy for a ministry to get involved in doing good things and neglect the best thing. So Jesus said, look, let's don't lose focus. Let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's build redemptive relationships to people who don't know me so that we have the opportunity to reach them and share our faith with them, reaching the lost. And in Luke 15, he talks about the lost silver, piece of silver. He talks about the lost sheep. And then he talks about the lost son. And this is really, folks, where our focus has been for the Easter series, the lost son. And in the parable of the lost son, he talked about the first weekend out, we talked about the younger son. And I told you that the younger son in the parable represents people who are lost and know they're lost. 
And there are a lot of people you and I associate with. And, and if we're honest, we'll have to say that about ourselves. We're, we're all kind of messed up. I mean, if for all of us, the best we'll ever be are sinners saved by grace, which means it's gonna be about two steps forward and three back throughout all of our life. You, you, we're never gonna get it perfectly. You're never gonna get it right. If you, if you put, I'm just happy when I can put a string of a few minutes together without messing up, right? So I'm just suggesting to you that we all relate to the younger son. To some degree and at some level, we know we're sinful. We know we make mistakes. I told you last week not to excuse sin in the life of a Christ follower, but the, the reality of it is you will continue and I will continue to sin to we're in the presence of God. The Bible makes provision to restore fellowship in 1 John 1, 9. Confession, uh, restoring the broken relationship with God, and you move forward day by day. Keep short accounts. But then he's talking about those who are sinners and know they're sinners in that the people who are not in a relationship with God and know they're away from him. And most of us know people, there may be some in the room or some watching who know, I, I've never placed my faith in Christ. I'm kicking the tires. I'm thinking about it. That's not my story. Uh, I would say if you're using the description of saved and lost, I would probably fall into that lost category. There are a lot of people that way. And I can tell you, you can do more for the younger son than you can the older. The younger son admits that they've got an issue. The younger son admits they've got a problem. The younger son will be honest enough to say, on one hand, I'm a sinner saved by grace, or on the other hand, I don't really have a relationship with God, uh, and I know I've, I've got some problems, I make mistakes, I'm not perfect. You can do something with somebody like that. The older brother, not so much. The older brother represents someone who is a sinner and doesn't know they're a sinner. In Jesus' story, they represent the Pharisee. They represent the religious order of the day. They represent the people who think they are righteous by the things that they do, and in so doing, they become self-righteous. Uh, they, they feel like they've attained a certain level of spirituality where they can look down on other people. They pontificate, preach down to people because they see people as being beneath them. And so they don't have a relationship with people because they feel like if you don't know Jesus, then I'm just gonna completely distance, and distance myself from you. And it was this self-righteous, prideful, uh, religious spirit that opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. And so you have this contrast of the two brothers, sinners who know they're sinners, sinners who don't know they're sinners, and you see this, this, this incredible contrast there uh, in the story. In fact, the older brother, when the younger brother finally comes home and he finally connects with the father, the, younger brother, uh, the older brother not only resented his younger brother, he resented his father. He looks at the younger one and says, well, you're just gonna welcome him back. In fact, in the narrative we read to you last week, he said, when this, your son, he didn't even see him as his brother. He had written him off. He's your son. He's not my brother, he's your son. He, and so he resented the brother who had messed up and was trying to make it right and come on. He resented, and then he resents his father. You didn't throw me a party. I've been the good son. Oh, he said, when this, your, when this your son goes and wastes his money on prostitutes. And like I said, how did that older boy know about the prostitutes? I don't know. He seemed to have a pretty good wealth of knowledge of what his little brother was into. Maybe the older brother was doing the same thing the little brother was doing, but the older brother was sneakier about it, right? I don't know, you. I found when people get into this pharisaical, critical kind of thinking, typically it's a smokescreen. If they can throw the attention on someone else, it throws attention off of them. And usually the people who are doing that are involved in, more, in worse things than they're accusing someone else of. 
don't have any patience for that religious spirit. I really don't. Because I found you can't help someone who is self-righteous. In fact, if you read the story, the whole parable, there's no resolution to the older brother. Did you know that? He doesn't resolve that. Jesus leaves it open-ended. Now, he resolves the younger brother. We're going to put a ring on his finger and a robe. I'll read that in a minute. We're going to put sandals on his feet. This boy's back, man. He's back. You don't see that resolution of the older brother. Why? Because it doesn't appear that the older brother ever dealt with his self-righteousness. And that was sad of the religious people of the day. They relied on their goodness to get them into heaven instead of God's grace. And what did Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? For by grace unmerited favor. For by grace are you saved through faith, and here it is, that not of yourself. It's a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus said, I'm not going to let you in heaven have you strut all over the place saying, look what I did to get myself here. <laughs> he said, it's here. you're here by God's grace and by the mercy of Jesus. And so you don't see a resolution to the older brother. And then Jesus brings the third figure in, and this is the one I want to talk about just before we go home. And that's the, the relationship of the father. And this father really represents the heart of God. He, he was the heart of that home. This father was an amazing, remarkable man. In fact, when you really look at this father, and by the way, this is the father Jesus is describing, and in the story, he's talking about people who are lost, know they're lost, people who are lost, don't know they're lost, and he's talking about a father that loved both boys. Look, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey or even if you have one. What I do know is there is a God who loves you. There's a God in heaven who loves you. He loves you even though you may not be aware of his love for you. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us in spite of us. This father loved both the boys. He was a remarkable father. And he had done the best he could do to, to raise these two boys right. And yet, man, they went on different paths. And when you look into the Bible and you look at how the Bible describes an effective father, and I really hope this is a characteristic that all of us guys can kind of lay claim to, at least most of them. He says this father is a, a, a protector. And in the Bible, a, a father is given to a family to be a protector. You're, you're to provide security and stability. We have the role of being a protector. Second role in the scripture, a father is to be a provider. Not only does that mean the material needs of our family, but we're to provide emotional needs and emotional support as well. I was watching a program on TV and it was really kind of heartbreaking. This man was being interviewed, his father had died. And, and, and the young man said this about his father. He said, the thing that I'll miss most about my dad is every year at Christmas, dad would get me and my brothers together and he said, it would be the one time of the year that he would individually tell us that, that he loved us. He said, that was the one time of the year. He said, he waited till Christmas and on Christmas day, he sat down with, and, and the man's weeping as he's telling the story. And I'm thinking, well, that's sweet on one hand, but that's terrible on the other hand. One time a year, you tell your kid you love him? <laughs> one time of the year, you pull him aside and say, son, I, I love you. Listen, guys, as, as fathers, as you look at this father, we're, we're to be protectors and we're to be providers. Telling your kid you love them shouldn't be like a Christmas gift. Hey, if you get lucky, I might tell you next year, but hold on to it. I can't make promises. Are you kidding me? Talk about a messed up kid you're raising. 
have a protector and a provider. Number three, they're to be a promoter. The dad has to see the best in their kid and you try to bring out the best in the kid. I, I read where James Robinson, Dobson said, James Dobson said, focus on the family. He said, listen, it takes 40 words of affirmation to counteract, counteract one word of criticism to the heart of a child. Holy cow. 40 words of affirmation to counteract one word of criticism from a father to the heart of their child. So dad's a protector, a provider, a promoter. We're, we're to be a priest. You talk about yourself as a priest? <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean, you have responsibility to have spiritual authority. You, you ought to take the point. Now, some dads don't, and the moms do, and thank God for you. Somebody's got to take the lead. But God looks at the dads, and he's saying, Dad, this is part of your role. You're, you're, Job was a priest over his household. We have a role to, to be a, a spiritual authority in our home and to help our kids grow in their faith. That's why I admire all of you dads and moms that bring your kids to church. You see the value of church. Because when you raise kids, if it's not important to you today, it won't be important to them tomorrow. And when you bring them to church and you expose them to the message of God when they're early and young in life, the chances of them making a commitment early and owning their faith early is greater than if you don't. So this dad is a protector, a provider, a promoter, a priest. By the way, he's a prophet. Let me explain that one. I mean, he speaks positive things into the life of their kids. You can do this, son. I've got confidence in you, my daughter. There's nothing you can't do. I mean, he has this role of a prophet seeing the very best, speaking into their potential, speaking into their destiny. Now, these are the qualities that the Bible talks about that are the qualities of a good father. And I say all that to you to say these were all the qualities of this father in Jesus' story. You can find all of the elements there. In fact, look at the narrative that I want to bring out, these passages that underscore this father. Look at Luke 15, 20. He gets up, this, this young son who decides to go home. While he's still a long way off, he's heading home, he's going home. His father sees him, and he's filled with compassion for him, and he runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Now, let me give you that context. This is that young man who had ran away. He'd got his inheritance and he wasted it. He's feeding pigs and he has this epiphany in the pig pen. And he says, man, I'm gonna go home, make things right. Maybe dad will hire me. Maybe there's some level of, of acceptance I can find with him. And so the boy has it all worked out in his mind. But man, this dad, listen, this dad's been looking for this kid every day. I mean, he said, I saw him when he was still a long way away. You know what that tells me? That tells me he was looking for him. He was watching for that boy. Some of you mamas can relate to that. You have a child and they've gone wayward or they've gone astray. And man, every day you're preoccupied with how they are and you're preoccupied with where they are. And in some ways you're watching the horizon and you're longing for the relationship again. That was his father. And man, all of a sudden he sees that boy top the hill heading home and he knows his son and he runs to meet him. He throws his arms around him, as I said. And listen, this boy had been feeding pigs. He, he had some stink on him, you know? Living with hogs, dirty. He did, he did not care. He didn't care what he looked like. He didn't care where he had been. He knew this was my son, and my son is coming home. Can I stop a skinny minute and say, God doesn't care where you've been, and he doesn't care what you look like. When you turn and you move to your heavenly father, he'll run to meet you. 
He hugs this boy. He kisses this boy. He embraces this boy. And the boy starts giving in verse 21 this rehearsed thing. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer the father. Look at verse 22. The father says, quick. No, son, I don't need to hear that. That's your rehearsed thing. I get it. It's very sweet. You're very contrite. You're confessing. I understand it. But quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, finger sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he was found and so they began to celebrate. And then you see down in verse 31, the contrast of the older boy who criticized the father and criticized his younger brother. And you see the response of the father to this boy. He says, my son, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he was found. And guys, when I read this story, there were three thoughts I had I wanted to give you. The first thought jumped out at me was what I called the forbearance of this father. Forbearance, the patience, the long-suffering, the willing, listen, the willingness to let his boy go. He realized that when this boy was of age, he's going to have to release him. Now, and when you read Hebrews 11, 24, when it talked about Moses, it said when Moses became of age, he had to make a decision to stay with Egypt and be an Egyptian and identify with Pharaoh and his family or to suffer affliction with the people of God. When kids come of age, they, they, they have to make a decision. Uh, the, the Bible says in, in Psalm, kids are like arrows in the hands of a hunter. Well, if you've ever done any archery, you know there comes a point <laughs> when you release, you hit the release. You have to let the arrow fly. And man, the thing about kids being compared in the Bible to arrows, what you understand, if you, again, know a little something about archery, you understand that those arrows can look exactly alike. They can have the same broadhead. They can have the same weight. They can have the same fletching. They can have all of those identifying markers, but no two arrows, when it leaves the bow, fly exactly the same. They'll fly through the air differently. What am I saying? I'm saying when you hit the release button and you let those little boogers go, <laughs> No two kids are going to fly exactly the same. And there comes a point where a father and a mother, you, you, you have to release them. This father realized this boy, he's going to make mistakes. I know he, I've already, he's already told me what he's going to do. He's running as far away from me and he's running as far away from his upbringing as he possibly can. But I can't control that and I can't control him. I'm going to have to let it go. And so you see the forbearance of the father. Now, how does that relate to God? I tell you how it relates to God. God and his love for us sometimes allows us to do the things we think we want to do, even though he knows it's not in our best interest. There is a permissible will of God. There is a realm whereby God will let kids, his kids operate in, and there is a realm whereby we can do what we want to do, and God will allow us to do what we want to do because he knows there's no other way we'll learn except by the things that we experience. And when we're going through all that crazy and we're dealing with all that stuff and we're making all those choices, the good thing that I just want to reiterate with you this morning is the fact you've got a God in heaven who is patient. He's patient. In fact, when you read 2 Peter 3, 9, it says uh, God is long-suffering to usward. Long-suffering, forbearing, patient. Well, what's another definition of long-suffering? It means it takes a lot to make God mad. He's long-suffering. He cuts you some slack. 
He loved this boy enough to release him. He loved him enough to pray for him. He loved him enough to allow this kid to kind of find his own way and find his own path. And the beautiful thing about it, guys, is he never gave up on him. The father watched for him and the father waited for him. And you see this beautiful forbearance of the father. In fact, if you look in Romans chapter two and verse four, here's a beautiful thought. It says the forbearance of God the patience of God and the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Wow. The fact that God is a forbearing God, a patient God, the fact that God, uh, he, he, he waits for us, he's long-suffering, those qualities in our heavenly Father are qualities that God will use ultimately to, to bring us back to himself. This, this young man knew something about his father. He knew when I went back, he may not fully accept me, he may not fully forgive me, but at least I have enough confidence in him, he'll give me a job, I can work for him, I won't have to eat with the pigs. Well, the boy knew something about his dad, but he didn't know enough about him. And when the father began to demonstrate to his son how much he loved him by ignoring all the things that the boy had planned on doing, I'll just be a hired hand, I won't even live on the ranch, I'll stay out in town, I'll just work when you need me. And the father said, no, you won't, you're my son. I'm gonna put a ring on your finger, I'm gonna put a robe on you, I'm gonna hug you, put shoes on your feet, and I'm gonna throw a party for you, kid, because you are home. It's a beautiful, beautiful, guys, beautiful picture of the forbearance of the Father, how God is patient with us. Second thought, not only did I see something of the forbearance of the Father, I saw something of the forgiveness of the Father. You know what's cool about that? God didn't make him do penance. He didn't put him on probation. <laughs> he forgave him instantly. Now, we're not always like that. Sometimes somebody, you know, does us wrong, and we're like, well, I'm gonna just keep my eye on that person. Yeah, they did that once, you know, they might be like, kind of, and I understand that. We're, we're, we all tend to be a little cynical when you can burn. But God, I tell you, God's not that way. He says, when I forgive you as far as the east is from the west, I'll never bring it up against you again. In fact, once your sins have been confessed to me and once I have forgiven you of your sins, then we're good. <laughs> you're, you're clear, you're clean. And this young man, man, when he comes back to the father, he found the forgiveness of the father to be complete. Got a ring. That means he could charge. That means as a member of the family, that spoke of his authority. That robe, that spoke, speaks of his covering, the, the shoes. That You're going in a new direction. Not everybody wore shoes or had those nice sandals back in the day. He said, I'm gonna take care of you. You're my son. I'm welcoming you home. Listen, you've been forgiven freely. You have been given, forgiven fully. You have been forgiven finally. What a beautiful example of how God forgives. And there's not a one of us in the room that, who, who doesn't need that forgiveness. So, you see something of the forbearance of God. You see something of the forgiveness of God. Thirdly, you see something of the fortitude of God, his strength, his power. Yeah, this boy had done a lot of terrible things. This boy at one point had wished his dad dead, didn't want any part of his family. He walked away, disrespected his father. He, he didn't care anything about any of that. But the father was strong enough to wait on him. He was strong enough to forgive him. He was strong enough to restore him. And man, when I read that story, what jumps out at me is the fact it doesn't matter how far you've gone or what you've done. You have a father that loves you and forgives you and he's strong enough to, to restore you. God can restore you. 
He can set you back where you were, and he can even make you better than you were. God is in the business of restoring his people. And this dad loved that boy. This dad restored that son. This dad forgave that son. I went to a, had a funeral of a friend of mine in uh, Eastland, Texas. Been friends for over 40 years. Um, helped us back, he was part of that little core group, he and his wife helped, kind of was part of, start, helped start the church. Ken and Darla Smith, known him a long time. Ran a gravel truck business in South Lake for years, ran probably 20, 30 trucks. And uh, sold the business, bought a ranch in Eastland got into some cutting horse back in the late 80s and 90s. Um, he was in the, in fact, at the futurity several times at Will Rogers in the cutting horse futurity down there. Great guy, just a great guy. The thing about Ken was he cared that people knew Jesus. He's a man that had been forgiven much and he was a man who wanted to share Jesus. And he had a, a way about him that, <laughs> that was unique. Um, he got pulled over, they were talking about the funeral, one of the guys shared the story. He got pulled over by a highway patrolman. And um, highway patrolman, they were talking a little bit, and Ken had a great personality. He looks at the highway patrolman, he goes, hey, do you go to church? Well, Ken Darla helped start the Leon County Cowboy Church down in Eastland. He built the building and paid for it and all that. Great man. And the highway patrolman said, no, I'm, I'm not really in church. And Ken said, well, you have kids? Yeah, I got kids. So you or your kid's wife, none, none, none of your family are in church. He said, no. He said, would you care if your kids go to hell or not? <laughs> Highway Patrolman said, what the hell you say? <laughs> well, the incredible thing in the story was the Highway Patrolman and his family, guess where they were? They were in Leon County Cowboy Church that next weekend. <laughs> and over the course of the next few weeks, they had all given their heart to Jesus. Because one man had experienced much, and he gave much. He, he just, in his crude way, his, if you knew Ken, that's just, that's how he rolled, man. In fact, when they called a new pastor down there to Leon County Cowboy Church, he went out just to meet the people, and he was visiting these different ranches, and <laughs> he drove up on Ken's ranch. He didn't know that was Ken that actually built and paid for that church. So when he got out of the truck and shook hands with him, he goes, hey, I'm the new pastor down at Leon County Cowboy Church. I just want to invite you and your family to church. He said, Ken looked at him and said, I don't like preachers, and just walked back in the barn. <laughs> My kind of guy, man. <laughs> but me either. Anyway. But I thought, as I heard that story, I thought about his legacy, and I thought about this weekend. As we move toward Easter, what a wonderful opportunity you and I have to tell people, just like Ken told people, about Jesus, uh, to invite them to be a part of something that could change their life. Let me give this to you, we'll go. In my former church, I had a, a deacon, been a good friend of mine for a number of years, and he told me this story. He said his mother was on her deathbed. He said, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, we have a lot of kids, and, and his mom requested something of him. He said, I want to see my grandkids. I've just kind of told the Lord, I'm not leaving here till I see my grandkids. And so they knew her time was short. Most of the grandkids now were in their preteens or up into their teenage years. So some of them lived out of town. So they called them and said, Grandma wants to see you. You guys need to get in and see her. She wants to see you. And so he said all the kids gathered at the hospital. And he said she didn't want to see all of them. She wanted to see each individual one of them. 
He said they'd go into the room, close the door, and he, she would spend time. He said some of them came out of the room laughing, some of them came out of the room crying, they, but all of them had an experience. And he said after, after all the grandkids had spent some time with her, he said, I went in, he goes, Mom, I know it's none of my business, but I'm just curious. What did you, what was that about? What did you talk to the kids about? She goes, I don't care if you know this. She said, I wanted each one of them to know that I love them. I want them to know how proud I am of them. I want them to hear that from me before I leave. And then she said, I wanted each one of them to tell me that they're going to see me in heaven one day. And I said to them, I've told Jesus, Grandma ain't going to heaven <laughs> till I know you're going to meet me there one day. And he said, you know, all those little kids gave her the assurance, Grandma will see you in heaven. And guess what? Within about 24 hours, she stepped into the presence of God. Can I say as a close, that's the big thing. That's the big thing. We can agree and disagree on a lot of stuff. Potato, patata, tomato, tomato. You know, the big thing is the cross. The big thing is getting people to Jesus. Man, if we miss that, we've missed it all. There, there's nothing more important than that. And whether you have a style like Ken, <laughs> my buddy in heaven today, or you have a different style, don't miss the opportunity that we have this Easter to bring somebody who needs Jesus and to pray that that might be the moment when their hearts open and they receive him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time we could spend worshiping you just to kind of press the world and the pressure of the world out and just for a while, allow our hearts and minds to be focused on you. I thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it never returns empty, that it always hits the mark. I pray for my friends, Father, now who've experienced the service and in whatever way you've spoken to them, I pray they will receive that word and apply it. I pray especially for my friends watching or in the room who've never trusted you as Savior. That this night be that moment where they just swallow their pride and they pray a simple prayer like this and say, Lord, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Be a reality in my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.